This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's part one of the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, a legendary Viking king. You'll see that if you get a pet snake for your daughter, you'll really want to make sure it's not actually a baby dragon that will terrorize your kingdom. If you're curious if your long-distance boyfriend is the one, there's a way to figure out if he's right for you. Surprise him when he comes to visit, and make him fight a giant bear. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a creepy guy in the woods that will trap you in a deadly tickle fight. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 13a, The Beggar King. This is a podcast where I tell stories that have shaped cultures throughout history. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. Today we'll be starting on the story of Ragnar Lothbrok, the legendary Viking king. He's the focus of the History Channel series Vikings, which is only based on the legends in the broadest of strokes. It's a decent show, and barely related to both the legend I'll be telling and the history behind the legend. The third story I did for the podcast was the saga of the Volsungs. It was a long one, it took five episodes to tell, but I personally really enjoyed it. It was part of the inspiration for The Lord of the Rings. The story today is a sequel to that one, but you don't have to listen to that story in its entirety to pick up today. That being said, if you even think you might like a very human drama played out over several generations of Viking Age people trying to make their way in the world, give those episodes a listen. Before I begin, I just want to say I'm going to name the locations in the story today by their current countries, just so we can kind of place them on a map. There wasn't anything like a modern nation back in the days these stories were being told, and instead there were just little principalities ruled by kings or jarls. These stories are set somewhere in the beginning or middle of the 9th century AD, meaning right at the beginning of the Viking Age, when raiders and warriors from Scandinavian countries were beginning to venture out and raid and conquer Western Europe and all the way down to Byzantium in the east and further. There's going to be a little bit of exposition here, but I'll try to keep things light and minimize the number of names you have to remember. Also, this is a very different story than the Volsungs. That one spanned generations and included the gods. This one is much more intimate, looking at a smaller cast of characters and their relationships and motivations. Thus, it definitely won't go five episodes, so no worries about that. It'll probably actually barely go two episodes. Okay. So in the Volsungs, Sigurd was the last prominent male of the Volsung family, and he became famous when he killed a dragon, and he sought out a prophet to try to know what he should do next. He found Brynhild, the prophetess, trapped in a keep, and pledged himself to marry her. They spent that night together, and, unknown to nearly everyone, conceived a daughter, which Brynhild secretly places in the care of her foster father, King Hymer. Through the machinations of a magician, Sigurd, the dragon slayer, doesn't come back for Brynhild for a few years and marries another woman. Brynhild is eventually freed, meets up with Sigurd and his new wife, and they have words. Sigurd is murdered by Brynhild because she's brokenhearted, and Brynhild stabs herself and lays down next to Sigurd on the pyre. Before she dies, though, she sends assassins to murder the children Sigurd had with the other woman. That's where we meet King Hymer today, for all intents and purposes, Brynhild's father. King Hymer is packing. He only has a small window to get out of the town, after he ordered the watch on an errand away from a certain gate for the next hour or so. Reports kept coming in from the kingdom where his daughter, Brynhild, had been. First, Sigurd Fafnisbane, the formerly living legend, had been killed. 
then Brynhild had been killed, and then the truly shameful news that Sigurd's children, barely walking, had been murdered in their beds. Then word came that Brynhild's servants had been killed, possibly out of retaliation. It could be a matter of hours until the purges came to his kingdom. He didn't have much time. For all he knew, they could be marching an army to his gate, or assassins could already be inside the walls, knives ready for anyone related to Brynhild. He needed to leave tonight. He flung a harp over his shoulder. It was heavy, but it would help him play the part. He gathered up his bags and looked at himself as he left. As soon as he left the gate, he couldn't carry himself like the king he had been all his life. He wouldn't be the king he had been all his life. He would be some common minstrel, a musician, a beggar. There was a slight chill for a summer night and he allowed himself one look back to the glowing fires of the fort before trudging out, unseen, across the windy moors. Weeks later, he stopped along the road. It had been a long day, and the strap of the harp was biting into his shoulder. He looked up and down the road and saw no one. He ducked off into the forest, and walked a little farther before he was out of view, and found a small pond. He set the harp down, took out a tool, and found a seam. A secret door popped open. Oslog, the daughter of Sigurd and Brynhild, and the reason he had left his kingdom, tumbled out of a secret compartment on the harp, and onto the grass. She was good-natured for a girl barely two and a half, and seemed to understand the reason why she had to stay hidden all day in the harp. Heimer didn't begrudge her climbing to her feet, and running off around the pond, doing cartwheels and laughing. As an aside, I know it sounds ridiculous to have so much space in a harp, but I've linked to pictures in the show notes. You can see how you might be able to build a secret compartment big enough inside a harp to fit a very small toddler. Heimer had explained all about what happened to her parents, to the girl who could barely talk. She needed to learn that this world was a dangerous place, full of dangerous people. She needed to do whatever she could to survive. That's why they had fled in exile. He cared for her, he had explained, and didn't want to give a baby up to assassins. In King Heimer's mind, he didn't have a choice, at least not an honorable one. He made a pledge to his daughter that he would care for young Oslog, and it wasn't in his nature to forget a promise when it became difficult to uphold. As he watched her run and laugh, he knew he had made the right choice. He would defend this young girl with his life if he needed to, if the assassins came for her. His hand went to his sword, he was old, but strong, and he could fight. Then he felt a chill in the air. Autumn was ending, and the first snows would be here soon. That was an enemy he couldn't fight. Months later, Heimer was slogging through the snow toward a cabin glowing in the night. He wanted to avoid people, but he hadn't slept for the last few days traveling through Norway in the winter, trying to find someone, anyone. They were out of provisions, and though he could hold out for a few more days, the girl was still a child. She didn't complain, but she was cold. Too cold. Inside the farmhouse, it wasn't giants or trolls or dwarves. Nope, it was just a poor woman named Grima, waiting for her husband to get back from cutting wood in the forest. She looked at this odd, handsome, old traveling musician and beckoned him in. It was strange how close to the fire he placed his harp. Heimer didn't speak for ten minutes while he warmed himself. And once he felt warm for the first time in weeks, he was fighting sleep. Grima prepared a meager meal for them, 
and she didn't see him slip some food into his cloak for the girl. The whole time, while they made conversation, she studied him in the harp. She said her husband would be home soon. He would need to sleep in the barn. It wouldn't be bad. He had cloaks and would be protected from the wind. He dragged the harp to the barn, opened and closed the secret door to give the girl the food, and then collapsed in exhaustion. That night, Kingheimer woke up in time to see the axe that was coming down toward his chest, but was too slow to stop it. Grima's husband drove the blade deep into Kingheimer's chest and ducked back. He didn't need to, though, and the strong old king lashed out while blood welled up in his mouth. He died from the gushing wound in his chest, straining towards the harp, before he choked on his own blood. Hours earlier, the husband, Aki, had returned home. He was mad at his wife for not picking up the house at all, and says it must be nice to stay at home doing nothing all day. She says, hey, she worked today, thank you very much. She found a very nice minstrel to kill and rob so that they could live in plenty for years. He's asleep in the barn right now, actually. She tells him all about Heimer, how he's old, but he must be some hero from an age gone by. He has some meager bags with him and a large harp. She guessed that he kept his gold hidden in the harp, because when it sat by the fire, she saw some gold-tinged threads poking out of a hidden seam. She surmised that there were not only fancy robes in there, but gold as well. Seeing as it was winter in what is modern-day Norway, things were rough for the pair, and not making it to spring was a yearly threat. This man might have enough for them to live for years without the ceaseless gnawing of hunger. The husband says that this is probably a bad idea. We get so few guests, can we not start off by murdering them? She says that this is why he will remain a little man, and gives him an ultimatum. Either he kills Heimer, or she marries Heimer, and they drive him off or kill him. She says Heimer spoke lustfully with her. He didn't. And she said he would love to marry her. He wouldn't. She told her husband that while he mulls it over, she'll just sharpen his axe in the corner. It's going to be used on somebody tonight, so it might as well be sharp. After the husband killed Heimer, they dragged the bags and the harp back into the house and rooted through the bags. Nothing. The woman searched the heart for the seam that she had seen earlier, but it was gone. She grabbed the axe from the man, and either through some act of the gods or sheer luck, she began chopping at the top part, away from Oslog. After the first slice, they saw that it was hollow, and pried it apart. The golden robes they expected. The toddler? Not so much. Oslog looked at the man, still covered after the spray of Heimer's blood from when he had killed him, and instantly discerned what happened. The girl began weeping then wailing. The man starts panicking. A kid. A witness. Now they were either going to have to kill her, or she would tell someone their secret. Who would have thought bad things would happen to you when you ruthlessly kill strangers and steal their things? The wife brushes off his concerns as she holds the girl, studying her. She comes to the conclusion that the girl is too young to talk. And thus, they're safe. They could use a daughter, an extra hand around the farm. Oslog shudders as Grima strokes her hair. They will keep her and raise her as their own. There's one problem. The girl is a child of royalty, and thus she's beautiful. Her beauty is actually seen as a mark of her royal heritage. The husband points out to his wife that they're both very ugly, like really unpleasant to be around and look at. Uncommonly ugly, and I'm not joking either. He actually says the phrase, uncommonly ugly. 
It's a little on the nose that these poor, evil farmers are ridiculously ugly, and nearly all the royalty in the stories are good-looking. But which one of these myths and legends have exactly been subtle so far? I mean, according to any art, Hercules fought everything naked, for goodness sake. Oh, you poor, poor, disgusting fool, the woman says. She has a plan. She's going to shave the girl's head, and when the hair comes back in, she'll rub tar on it to make it black and gross. She'll always keep the girl badly clothed and make her do the worst work so that her hands are just wrecked and she's constantly dirty. She'll look just as ugly as the couple, don't you worry. No one will ever know. Oslog would know, though. Even as the years passed, and she eventually forgot Heimer's face, she would carry her heritage with her. The wind howled over miles and miles of empty land. She would be safe from the assassins, of course, in this dark, cold corner of Norway. But Oslog had only fled instant death to live a torturous life raised by an uncommonly ugly sociopath and her equally hideous husband, who murdered the only person left on earth that actually cared about the young girl. She would remember what Heimer had told her about her family. And wait... Decades later, the young king Ragnar was sailing for his homeland. Even in his late teens, he was weary. His father had been a king, but he had been too diligent about protecting his people from threats abroad, too trusting of his ally close to home, his cousin, not to move in on his land once he was gone. The ally attacked, and the nobles rallied behind Ragnar, who is said to be just out of boyhood. He had briefly led the councils, but was shipped off to be educated in Norway, away from the danger. Years passed, and his people killed each other, until he heard the news. Both his father and his cousin had died fighting each other, and the civil war was over. His kingdom needed him. As an aside, there's no real consensus on the life and death of Ragnar's father. I went with this one. But another woman has him as an old man falling in love with a much younger woman, and the girl's brother is not liking that a whole lot. He killed them because he's a Viking king, and that's apparently a viable solution to most of his problems. But he was too late. They had given the girl poison to drink so that she wouldn't end up married to the old king. She died, and Viking funerals sometimes consisted of a ship on the water turning into a funeral pyre. The princess and her brothers were placed on the ship, but Ragnar's father leapt aboard as well not wanting to be apart from her. He died sailing a burning ship over the horizon and into the sunset, which, yeah, a little theatrical, but if you're a legendary Viking king, over-the-top theatrical deaths are really the only way to go. It's that, the one I told before, or any number of stories. Anyway, back to Ragnar. When he returned to the kingdom in Denmark, he was told what he, the new figurehead of the kingdom, must do. Another king had aided Ragnar's cousin, but escaped back to his city. He had captured many women on his way back. Worse, he was openly defying the young king by doing the exact opposite of respecting the prisoners, and he was forcing them to see clients in the brothels. This was one step too far. They came ashore in the king's land, and news quickly spread that this young, untested king had come to free the captives. Among the captives was a willful, intelligent young woman named Lagertha, and though she was a barbarian that had been captured in another war, and thus wasn't from Ragnar's kingdom, she knew an opportunity when it presented itself. Upon hearing of Ragnar's approach, she helped orchestrate an escape where the young women wore men's clothes, armor, and anything else they could get their hands on. 
I like to think that they took the clothes and armor at knife point from the bewildered Johns one night and left. They find their way to Ragnar's army, where several of the women wanted to fight the king who had forced them into such terrible slavery. Ragnar said that it was unbecoming of a woman to wish such a thing, and they should feel shame for even asking. Just kidding. He says, yeah, absolutely they can fight. He could use the help, and they rush into battle with the men. The Viking legends are kind of refreshingly different from some of the others we've gone over up to this point. Lagertha, the barbarian woman, doesn't even bother to hide her hair. She wants the enemy to know a woman is ending their life. Also, as an aside, she's all the more awesome in that, in hand-to-hand combat like this, her long braids would be a huge liability because someone could just grab them. She fights in front, among the bravest, and it's said that all marveled at her matchless deeds. Ragnar had been in the fray, and was awestruck with this woman who fought even more intensely than he did. Eventually he defeated the petty king in Sweden, and all the other captured people went home. Unfortunately, Lagertha left for her barbarian homeland before Ragnar had a chance to talk to her. There was talk among the men. They had a powerful force, but Lagertha had turned the tide of battle. Ragnar made it known amongst all the warriors that they had gained victory by the might of this one woman. Lagertha is said to be an Amazonian, but that's not really the great concept of the Amazonians, so she doesn't really belong to the people once led by Hippolyte, who surrendered her kingdom to Hercules's rippling biceps. It seems more likely it's just a moniker to evoke all the things we think of when we say Amazonian. Ragnar sends letters via messenger, and he and Lagertha become close as they get farther apart, and she returns to her homeland in Norway. Eventually, though, she invites him to come see her. She had a final test for him before she would take him as her husband. Coming to her dwelling, in the fading twilight of the day, he saw two creatures outside the door. He had come armed, and that was good, because in seconds he saw the teeth of a bear and a dog charging him. Yep, I don't know why this little test has fallen out of favor. To anyone out there who's concerned that your boyfriend might not be the one, just lure him to your home with sweet nothings and surprise him with a dog and bear fight. If he loses or runs away screaming, confused that you somehow got a bear to attack him, well, it might not be meant to be. Ragnar bashed the dog with his shield, buying him precious seconds. The bear reared up to attack, but he was able to line up the spear he had with him just in time to get its heart and get out of the way before the wall of fur came down on him. The dog charged a second time, but Ragnar had just taken out a bear, so he simply grabbed it and choked it to death. Ragnar looked up from the dead animals to see Lagertha standing in the doorway, smiling. He went to her, and they kissed. He had won her hand, and they married, and it apparently didn't cross Ragnar's mind to return home to his fractured homeland. He and Lagertha had multiple children, two daughters and a son, and they passed three years together in Lagertha's land, in peace for the first time since Ragnar had his father's title thrust upon him before he was even a teenager. But of course, the peace can't last. In the time since he left, the other petty kings and jarls were salivating over his land. They rightly assumed that he was gone, so they began raiding. Three years is a long time to leave your already fractured realm. Even if he did come back, who needed a boy king that would take power and abandon them just to marry some barbarian? Some of the nobles joined up and defected, while the others stayed loyal to Ragnar. We're dying for Ragnar. Word finally reached him, and he was torn. 
He was happy here and had found some peace in this world and he likely didn't wish to leave his small family. On the other hand, people were dying for him and for everything his family had built. If he didn't do it for those people, he should at least do it for his father, who had risked everything and lost everything to make his kingdom strong. Ragnar began packing. Lagertha wasn't torn. She wouldn't even want to be with a man who would choose peace and security over renown in defending his people. She knew him. She knew that once he got a taste for the world beyond their fort, for the glory that was possible, he would never return to her. But if he stayed, he would be dead to her. She had married a warrior, a king, a man, not some sheepish boy who hid from the world. She hated the choice he had to make, but she respected it. They embraced before he left, him promising he would return as soon as the Civil War had ended. She smiled. He didn't yet know that he was lying. He sailed for home and spread word before him. He didn't even know what to expect, but he was surprised by what he saw. His kingdom, peasants and nobles alike, were massed on the shore. They were ready for Ragnar to lead them. He had a kingdom of his own to lead now, not one in his father's name, he and his followers fought with zeal and took back their land. He had planned to return to the north, to Lagertha, but he couldn't leave so fragile a land just yet. Days turned to weeks, and weeks turned to months. At some point it dawned on him that he not only couldn't go back, but he must divorce his wife. This land needed him, and though he had retaken it, he was politically weak. He needed to ally himself with a king by marrying a princess. Otherwise, he was only a small war away from being deposed, and, sadly, marriage to a barbarian far away only weakened him. He sent a messenger to Norway. Lagertha, however, was not heartbroken. She still cared deeply for Ragnar and loved him, but knew that everything had changed for them the moment she heard the pleas for him to return. Not one to waste away in sorrow, she was a survivor and had already been in the process of securing a future for herself from the moment Ragnar left. I've been saying Jarl a lot, and it's basically an earl, or a noble, who rules underneath a king. Well, a Jarl had a beautiful daughter. Her name was Thora, and he liked to get her nice things. One day, when he was out hunting, he found something for her in the forest. I imagine the conversation with one of his hunting companions went like this. Hey, I found a tiny snake that I'm going to give to my daughter. That's not a snake. Snakes don't have two legs. That's a baby dragon. That's crazy. It's one of those snakes with legs that absolutely exist and you hear about all the time. Nope, it's a dragon. And even if it was a snake, what girl would want some snake that her father found in the woods? Anyway, you should just let that thing go, because best case scenario, it's going to get way too big, escape, and you'll have a dragon spewing poison running around your land. Worst case scenario, it won't escape, and we'll just keep your daughter captive in her house. Well, the second one is exactly what happened. He gave her the animal that was very clearly not a snake, and she fed it. Eventually it became too big for his box. Then the room it was in. Then the house. Then the yard in front of the house. Unfortunately, it wouldn't leave the yard in front of the house, and the only time it would let someone get close enough without spewing poison at them was when they would come daily and feed it a whole ox. There was a small bonus. The father had given the baby dragon to his daughter with a small amount of gold underneath. Because the story can't be too realistic, the gold magically grew with the dragon, and so it was now sitting atop a massive pile of gold. The Jarl put out a notice that anyone who kills the thing will get both his daughter's hand in marriage and the gold as a dowry. 
This turned out to be a perfect opportunity for the freshly divorced Ragnar, who was looking for a powerful alliance, and who recently got a taste of glory when he took back his homeland. We know him as Ragnar Lothbrook today, but he actually earned his second name, a nickname, right here. To prepare for the fight with the dragon, he donned hide armor, boiled in pitch to protect himself against the dragon's bite and poison. He then put on shaggy breeches, one source says, to protect himself. My guess was that this was to make himself appear bigger, and so if the dragon was to bite at him, it might miss, but that's anyone's guess. Because he's a Norse warrior, he then jumps in the sea and waits for his armor to freeze to harden everything and give him a bonus to his armor class. The shaggy pants? Well, that's what Lothbrook means. Shaggy breeches. So his name is Ragnar Shaggy Breeches. He doesn't talk to anyone, but runs up to Thor's quarters in his frozen armor with a shield and a spear strapped to his wrist. He's somehow still able to move quickly and not die of hyperthermia, despite his legs having literally frozen. There's not much on the dragon fight. It snaps at him. He bashes it in the face with a shield. It spews poison. He holds his breath briefly, and his clothes somehow help to counteract it. While it's attacking his shield, he stabs it in the back and breaks the spearhead off inside the dragon. As the dragon fights, the spearhead tears all around inside him, until he eventually succumbs to way too much internal bleeding and collapses. In some versions, Ragnar runs away for some reason, and the Jarl needs to call an assembly where all are ordered to bring their weapons. The Jarl goes around and tries to find the spear that fits with the spearhead, and eventually he meets Ragnar. It's kind of like Cinderella, only instead of a glass slipper left at a ball, it was a broken spearhead lodged into a dragon's spine. Ragnar and Thor are married and live in peace for some time. They have two sons together, named Eric and Agnar, and over seven years pass in relative peace, with Ragnar presiding over his kingdom. As generally happened, warring tribes attacked, Chutes and Scanians, if that means anything to you. From time to time there are going to be these big battles, but I'll just let you know who the opposing forces are when it matters to the story. These ones are Germanic tribes, and Ragnar has some trouble with them. Though, he lets his seven-year-old fight in one of the battles, and the kid kills a lot of people so you have to wonder how tough these guys really are. He calls for aid from the surrounding kings and jarls, and some come. One in particular comes from Norway, King Harald. Ragnar sees the warrior trailing behind Harald, and he doesn't need that person to take off the helmet. The braids give her away. It was Lagertha, and behind her rode their son. If you listen to the Volsungs, you'd think that something like this would, say it with me, spark a cycle of revenge that would leave most dead. But everyone is pretty okay with this situation. As I said, Lagertha respected that Ragnar had to make the choice he did. He respected that she remarried into another position of power after he left, and Harold actually came at the prompting of his wife because she cared for Ragnar and wanted to help him out. For all these emotionally charged people who love killing things, they are pretty reasonable with this whole situation. They fight against the tribes. Ragnar and his portion hold up well. Harold, Lagertha's new husband, wavers, and his line breaks, which results in the slaughter of many of his men. Lagertha, who I'm quickly learning that you really don't want to mess with, somehow came up from behind and single-handedly turned the tide of battle, again, and crushed the morale of the tribes who realized that they were pinned on both sides by Ragnar's forces. Ragnar and Lagertha said a warm goodbye and she and Harald went home to Norway, with significantly later ships. 
Ligertha barely acknowledged the existence of her weak and fearful husband, who had led so many of their men to their deaths. Weeks later, in Norway, Ligertha opened her eyes in the darkness. She was laying next to her husband in bed, and rolled over and wrapped an arm around him. She started rubbing his chest, and Harold slowly woke up, happy that his wife had maybe come around after what happened in Denmark. She moved to rubbing his ribs, which was a little weird and didn't feel that good. She was kind of pressing him pretty hard between them. He was about to say something when she stopped. He rolled over to kiss her, and he felt the cold iron of a broken spearhead scrape between his ribs and pierce his heart. Blood poured out from his chest onto the bed, and he tried to scream, but she covered his mouth for the few more seconds he remained conscious. Lagertha sprung up and got dressed and armed without even throwing a blanket over the body. If the others hadn't done their jobs, she would need to fight her way out of the city. But they had done their jobs. Over the past few weeks, the soldiers loyal to Lagertha had been gauging the loyalty of their fellow warriors in addition to many of the Jarls. They identified several that would be loyal to the king in the event of a coup, and those people had either been woken up in the night at sword point and gently persuaded, or outright disposed of, on the night that Lagertha killed the king. In the morning, everyone had learned of the coup, but it was too late to do anything about it. The queen had already consolidated power. Like I said, you really don't want to mess with Lagertha, or show weakness around her, or try your best and just happen to lose a battle. The reason why she did it was that she couldn't bear to be married to and under the command of a king who was so weak. Regardless, she usurped her husband and took his title and lands and ruled in his stead. She didn't marry again, preferring to remain the sole ruler. She passes from our record here, having gone from a slave to the ruler of thousands. As an aside, I learned that one of the writer's depictions of Lagertha is not really supposed to be positive. It was apparently supposed to show how wildly inappropriate the pre-Christian Danes were, what with their women fighting alongside the men, and having an active role in running society. It's cool that we can see her a bit more nuanced today. I mean, she murdered her husband and usurped his throne, so that wasn't great. But it was nice to see, much in the same way as Oslog, a female character that doesn't fit perfectly into the stereotypical roles of medieval literature. Just as Ragnar's first wife was reaching the apex of her power, the second wife was meeting her end. Much to his despair, she became sick and died. He was in so much despair that he left his kingdom in the hands of trusted men and sailed for southern Norway. He was going to visit friends during the short summer. They traveled inland a bit, and some of the servants wanted to bake some bread. They looked off into the distance and saw a farmhouse. When they knocked on the door, an uncommonly ugly woman answered and beckon them in. Next week, we're actually going to take a break from this narrative for a week, and I'm going to do a Halloween episode. We'll be back to the cold, dark north, though, in two weeks, as we all enter cold, dark November. iTunes absolutely blew up with reviews in the last week. So thanks to Petting Zoo, Arcavia, Pete123345, Brover77, Isabel22, Verge4444, Kenny A, Lily Mac, Flexnaki, Jay Shadow, Kligerman, Androthia, ScottListener03, PS3, and Penguin Carl for the reviews. Also, thanks so much to everyone who's reached out via email, on Facebook, and Twitter. It's really great to hear from you. 
If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is probably the best place. You can go to itunes.mythpodcast.com. Thank you all so much. And before the creation of the week, I just want to say I made a Patreon page. I'm incredibly grateful for the people who have pledged anything so far. If you'd like to help me out with the cost of the show and show your appreciation, you're able to contribute any amount of money. For $5 a month, less than the price of half of a bottle of horse shampoo, you can have access to an extra show each month, as well as EPUBs, PDFs, and Kindle versions of the sources I've used in the show. If you're interested, you can go to support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Shirale from Turkic folklore. He's a shapeshifter, but in his original form, he's naked with a woolly body, long, creepy fingers, and a horn on his forehead. When he's in your village, he can transform into a peasant, but the fact that his eyes glow red and his shoes are on backwards might be slight giveaways. If farmers befriend him, he can protect their crops, look after their sheep, or teach them the secrets of magic. One of these things is not like the others. The forest is his home, though. If he crosses your path and you don't realize it, you'll become lost and just might run into him. If he catches you, he will tickle you to death. That's right, and if you've ever been tickled just beyond the point of it being fun, being tickled by a hairy man with long fingers in the woods just might be the worst way to go that I've talked about. If you find yourself lost by a Shirali's trickery, then all you have to do is put your shoes on the opposite feet and wear your clothes inside out. Because nothing helps with hiking through the woods like having your shoes fit poorly and clothes on wrong. If he starts tickling you, that's it, you're done for. But one famous Tartar song tells of a woodcutter who went into the forest and met up with him. The Shirale asked him to, and I quote, put your instruments down and play a tickling game with me. The boy is smart and says no thanks to the man hiding in the bushes, wanting to play a tickle game, and oh my gosh, saying that out loud, it sounds so creepy. The Shirale becomes more insistent, and eventually the boy agrees, on the condition that the creature help him split a log first. With the creature's long fingers, he's able to get deep in the wood the boy is holding apart with a wedge. As soon as he's in, the boy hits the wedge out, and the tree clamps down over its fingers, trapping him there. The boy casually picks up his horse and leaves the Shirali in the forest. Once he's gone, all the creepy creature's friends come out of their respective bushes and laugh at him. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music from the show are in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.